had today is uh, worship time, blessed time. Thinking ahead about today, the right to life Sunday, I found myself thinking about the difference between God's perspective and man's perspective on a number of issues, and certainly the sacredness of human life is one of those. I'd never even thought about abortion, perhaps never known anyone who had an abortion, until I was a senior in high school. Let me tell you the story. There were a group of us boys that had grown up together. We'd gone to grade school together, junior high together, high school together. We'd been Cub Scouts together, Boy Scouts together. When we were around 12 or 13, we began traipsing through the woods with our rifles, challenging each other in marksmanship. Uh, there were no secrets we had from one another. We knew one another in and out. There were about five, six of us, sometimes seven, but certainly the core group of five. We also were musicians. We'd all started playing band instruments in grade school. We were in bands together in junior high and high school. We played together in other venues. In high school, we suddenly were old enough to drive, or at least thought we were. And Eugene Lawson's family had a 1932 Plymouth sedan, a rather boxy, rather roomy vehicle. And so on Friday nights, Eugene would get the Plymouth and we'd climb into the car with our instruments and we'd drive around town playing. We'd get out, out of the car downtown Muskogee and on the corner we'd give a concert. I remember one time we uh, had an impromptu parade at the Veterans Hospital on, on Honor Heights. We uh, did Christmas caroling together on our musical instruments. Uh, that was just tons of fun for us. And we were really a very, very tight group. In high school, and I don't remember whether it was sophomore or junior year, uh, we had a new young man in the band. His father was an engineer. They had moved to Muskogee because they were getting ready to build Fort Gibson Dam, which now is Fort Gibson Lake, as you know. His father was an engineer, a corps of engineers who had come to supervise the building of that project. His son, I'll not use his real name, I'll call him Marty. Marty played the trombone, and he was in our band. And even though Marty was an outsider, and you have to understand the mentality of Muskogee to understand how serious that is, but he was an outsider, and, and it's amazing. Sooner or later, he became part of our group. And so now we had clarinets and trumpets and trombones, and Eugene played the tuba, which he couldn't play while driving the car, but still was a help when we'd get off and, and do concerts. Now, there are two social classes in Muskogee. The east side, that's where the laboring group lives, and all of us were east siders. The west side is where the doctors, the lawyers, the people own the factories, the people own the companies that the East Siders worked for. And of course, Marty was an East Sider. To this day, I don't know how, but some way he began to have a relationship with a girl from the West Side. One night, as we were together on Friday evening, Marty said, using the girl's name, she's pregnant. That stunned us. <laughs> None of us had ever heard of a girl in high school being pregnant. We certainly had never crossed that line. What are you going to do, Marty? 
not old enough to get married. Not only that, you know, her family's rich Cherokees, upper social class. You're an interloper in town. You're a German-American. What are you going to do? Well, I found a doctor who will perform an abortion. An abortion? Something didn't sound right. <laughs> now, Marty and I always had common interest in mathematics, common interest in science. We had great conversations. We enjoyed these studies together. It's an amazing young man, very well informed, and an abortion. Well, Jim, all it is is just a little glob on the uterus, nothing else to it, scrape it out, it's gone, that's all. Well, he was so well informed, knew so many things, I accepted that as true. You know, for many, many years, that was my perspective. I really wasn't interested in the subject, and any time any kind of literature about abortion did cross my desk, it always presented that point of view. And I never encountered any kind of literature that in a serious way presented an alternative point of view. As a matter of fact, the first time I met any anti-abortionists, they were more anti-abortion than they were pro-life, and they were so into emotionalism, just their whole style immediately turned me off. I want logic and reason <laughs> not heat and fire. Today I'm firmly in the pro-life camp. <laughs> I've come to that position through study, through seeing the tragedy in the lives of women who have had abortions and with whom sometimes we've counseled, through the study of God's Word, philosophically, I am firmly in the pro-life camp. The doctor's perspective, Marty's perspective was, it's just a glob on the uterus, and that's all. That's a man's perspective. But God's perspective is pro-life. It's interesting as you look at the various cultures of the world that those cultures that tend to be atheistic, at least anti-church, in those nations, in nation after nation after nation, abortion is common and prolific. Now I don't know about the current status in Russia, but in the days before the fall of communism, abortion was the understand method of birth control. Matter of fact, Russian wives, mothers, many of them, most of them perhaps one might say, had, had a number of abortions during their lifetime because that was just the means of birth control. And after all, birth control is important for people who don't want to be bothered with children. I was reading an article this past week describing the situation in China, and as most of you know, with a one-child policy, there is an effort to limit the population. Boys are preferred over girls. 37,000 
Chinese girls are aborted every day. Think of that, 37,000 every single day. Because after all, we're just animals. At least that is the communist view, which is not fully there in China, but I would assume to some degree is in some quarters. That was the Marxist perspective, and that perspective prevails in a lot of places, but not only in those countries. There are many other countries today in which abortion is the assumed method of birth control, of keeping population down. Our population is rising. We can't support all these people. We have to do something. And so we practice abortion. That's man's perspective. And of course, in many ways, it's man's hedonistic perspective, isn't it? I don't be bothered with a child. The most supreme right in the world is me to be self-determinative, the right of choice, freedom, liberty, man's perspective, but not God. One day I talked to one of my relatives, a very brilliant man. He's a nuclear physicist. He worked at Los Alamos, worked on the bomb. He was on the first faculty at the... Uh, Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, on the Armed Services Committee in Congress, involved with uh, armament, disarmament talks with the Russians. He told me about it one time, meeting in lead line rooms so they couldn't tell what they were discussing. Supposedly a Christian, but I later he did become Unitarian. I'm not sure what you call that. But one day as we were talking, we had a non-combative, but still somewhat argumentative discussion on abortion. Jim, what about all of these babies being born to mother on welfare and the horrible life they have to lead? Now listen, if you believe that life begins at the moment of conception, and if you believe that as soon as life begins, spiritual life also begins, and that spiritual life will never end, and if a child dies in infancy, that child flies in the arms of Jesus, but if that child is born into such a situation, what kind of a horrible life will it have? Poverty and abuse, isn't it better to abort that child and let it fly into the arms of Jesus rather than be born into the horrible life that awaits it. That is man's reasonable perspective. <laughs> that is not God's perspective. 1986, Pam and her husband Bob were missionaries in the Philippines. Pam contracted uh, amoebic dysentery became quite ill. She was hospitalized. They gave her powerful antibiotics, the ones they had at those times, many other medications. And while she was in the hospital, they discovered that she was pregnant. And the physicians who attended her said, you know, all the medicines, all the antibiotics, everything we have given you will do irreparable harm to the child in your womb, the intelligent thing, the caring thing to do is to have an abortion. After all, it's just fetal tissue. Pam prayed. 
refused to agree to the abortion. She was not listening to man's perspective. She and her husband, Bob, prayed and said, Oh God, if you will bring this child to fruition, if you will give us a healthy boy, we will do all that we can to make him a preacher. Four times during the pregnancy, she almost lost the child. She spent the last two months in bed. And in 1987, a healthy boy was delivered on August 14th. They named him Tim. He did become a preacher, preached in many places. He preached in hospitals. He preached in prisons. And Tim also plays football. His name is Tim Tebow. As a sophomore, he is the only sophomore to ever receive the Heisman Trophy, as you know, now playing for the Denver Broncos, which has given him a tremendous platform to talk about the things of Jesus. And you know, as, as quarterback, he was able to lead the Broncos into four or five games in a row, some of them almost miraculous, and then they lost. Now, Shannon Sharp, who had been on the Denver Broncos for many years as a receiver, Hall of Famer, now a newscaster, had been a bitter, bitter critic of Tebow. He resented the way that Tebow kept presenting Jesus Christ on every opportunity. And after that game, I saw the interview that he had with Tebow, and he began to question him, and, and somehow this, and don't you think the coaches maybe are going to replace you? And Tebow's answer was marvelous. He said, Shannon, it's just a game. It's just a game. But what is not a game is the hospital I'm building in the Philippines with my salary. God's perspective. To God, it's just a game. Isn't that beautiful? God's perspective versus man's perspective. Let's pray that throughout his days he can keep God's perspective. It's very difficult to avoid having our perspective influenced by the world about us and to begin to have a view of ourselves that the world programs into us. Isn't that difficult? It just so tries to seep into our soul the most important thing is to solve my problem. The most important thing is to make me happy. The most important thing is for me to be fulfilled. The most important thing is for me to be healthy. The most important thing is to get everything I've earned and maybe a little bit more. The most important thing is for everybody to recognize my great accomplishments. Man's perspective. Several days ago before sunrise, I got my cup of coffee and sat down in bed and randomly opened my Bible. Have you ever done that and surprised what you see? I found myself looking at First Chronicles 29. I began to read and second verse arrested my attention. Then King David said to the entire assembly, they were getting ready to build the temple, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young. 
and inexperienced. And the work is great. And then here's what arrested my attention. For the temple is not for man, but for Jehovah God. Some of you in your versions say the palace, and some say sumptuous dwelling. The Hebrew word is barah, which means stronghold, can mean palace, uh, something of that nature. What David was saying is we are building this opulent building not for a man to occupy, but for God to occupy. And this Birah will not be the property of any man or any group of people. It will be the property of Jehovah God. I began to grieve deeply. As I thought of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that in so many, many quarters man has taken as his possession. This is what I want the church to be. That is what I want the church to be. The church is a platform in which I can give orations and live in five houses, three maybe, and drive big cars because of the offerings. Today, we have so many people who give very little thought to what the one who bought the church with his blood wants the church to be. Jesus said, I will build my church. And in many quarters, although not with words, by behavior it has been said, we're taking it over. We'll make it what we want to be. I cannot escape grief over that because this temple is not for man but for the Lord God. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. Genesis chapter 10, verses, chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. Abraham, or Abram at the time, had received great promises from God that through him all nations of the world would be blessed. His descendants would be as great as the stars. And one day, he and Sarai, his wife, approached Egypt. And I wonder what was in his mind. 
Was he thinking it is important for my life to go on? Is it important that I not be killed? Because as yet none of this has happened and therefore I'm obligated to stay alive. Perhaps that's the way, you know, we humans reason interestingly. Genesis 12, it came about when he came near to Egypt. He said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me. They'll let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Let's tell a lie. (laughs) All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. 1 Kings 15.5 Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, my Uncle Marion began to teach me to fly fish and also then began to tie flies. Ed has a brother that ties flies. They're artistic all over the world. They look at the flies that Ed's brother ties. But we'd get this kit from Montgomery Ward and you begin to tie flies. You try to create on a hook something that to a fish will look like a bug. And then you attach that to a leader, which is either a very fine line or some cases transparent, and then a heavier line. Now, the way you find fly fish, you have to be careful with the rod and never let it go back too far. If you do, the line pops like a whip. And so you just want to, you pull out line and you do like this and let a little out so the line will loop and then gently you cast it where you want it in the water. And then you tease it along. And if there are any fish of the right kind in the area, and they see that, because fish live to eat, procreate, sleep, and swim, (laughs) and they see that bait, they can't help themselves. (laughs) They grab it, and they're hooked. And you pull them in and catch them with the net, and put them in the creel and do it again. Barren Fork Creek, we caught sun perch, other places, trout. But that fish is so programmed and his instincts are such that when he sees that bug, he has to bite. Ah, Satan has watched us for centuries. (laughs) He knows us. So well as humans, he knows what kind of bait we can't resist. I'm 81 years old. He's been watching me a long time. He sure knows what bait's a challenge to me. David, past middle age, while his troops were in the field fighting, stayed back home in the palace. And walking along the parapet, One day, he saw at a lower level 
on the flat roofs that those buildings had, a beautiful woman bathing herself. Satan had laid out the bait. He quickly inquired, who is this woman? It's the wife of Uriah, one of your shock troops who's out in battle. And so David had her come and he lay with her. She went through the ceremonial cleansing, went home, missed her first period, sent word to David, I'm pregnant. Don't you know the devil was dancing? <laughs> I've put out the bait, and he bit. So David started reasoning as a human. What can I do? I'm the king. He had Uriah come back and talked with Uriah and had dinner with him. He said, you know, go home and spend the night with your wife. Thinking if he spent the night with his wife when the baby was born, Uriah would think it was his. When David got up in the morning, he found that Uriah had not gone home. Uriah said, how can I go home and spend the night with my wife when your troops are in the field, when the ark of God is even in a tent and threatened? So David said, stay another day. That night they had dinner, and he got Uriah drunk, thinking he'd go home and be with his wife. Uriah didn't do it. David's scheme wasn't working. So I wrote a note and gave it to Uriah. I said, well, go back to the army. Give this note to the commander. And the note said, put together some shock troops. Let Uriah be in that group and have them draw close to the city wall that we're trying to overcome and then have everybody else draw back and leave Uriah alone. Let him be slain. So the commander did exactly as David had commanded and they got close to the wall. One woman threw off a stone and killed a soldier. Arrows killed others. And the best warriors of the city came out, and everyone, everyone in that special ops group, to use contemporary language, was killed. The commander sent a note back to David, tell him about it. And when he starts complaining, why did you let these guys get killed, say, and Uriah is dead. Ah, clever David. He saved his reputation. No one's going to know. And he, in time, then took Bathsheba as his wife. Smart fellow. But read the end of the story, verse 27. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not long after that, Nathan the prophet came, stuck a mirror in front of David's face, and David realized the horror of what he had done. Psalm 51 was composed by David in that experience 
Allow me to take the time to read it. Think of David's spot now. Exposed. Not only that, we're told the, the reminder is given by the prophet in 2 Samuel 12, 14. He said, because of what you have done, you have given God's enemies occasion to blaspheme. Every time a Christian falls, every time a preacher falls morally, every time an elder is caught in a compromising situation, the enemies of God have opportunity to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. So thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. I own up to it, God. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. I wonder when he wrote that was David saying, you have to understand, Jehovah, I was born a part of a sinful race. This is who I am. This is just what we do. Or was he regretting the fact that he was a part of such a race? I don't know. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Elsewhere, David wrote about this same situation. He said, when I keep kept silent, my bones groaned within me. Hide thy face from thy sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Change me, God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. I've learned my lesson. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. He was blood guilty of the death of Uriah. Thou, O God of my salvation, and on and on. Don't you hear? A man who was forced to look in the mirror and see the horror of what he had done. He had followed the reasonableness of human perspective rather than God's. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us,
has gone to his own way. We read the story of the prodigal son. And when we read it, we read that the prodigal son, it says he came to himself. And sometimes when we see someone who is strayed and caught up in the life in which Satan glorifies, we pray, may they come to themselves. There's a way in which that is right. But I find more and more I'm praying, oh God, may they come to yourself, because if they come to themselves, I know where they'll be. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Proverbs 14, 12, and Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on their own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and health to your bones. Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The same thing Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. I pray for myself and for all of you that we can put aside our pride and admit it when we have yielded to one of Satan's ploys. To not hide our sin. To not start using human reason looking for some kind of a loophole, treating the Bible as if it were a legal document instead of the Word of God. Let's ask God to let us see through His eyes, His perspective, that we will be blind to man's perspective. But let's not forget the last phrase of Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If you look to your past, in the past, you have had an abortion. Or if you're a man who encouraged a woman with whom you had a relationship to get an abortion, you're guilty. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If you have been a liar, a deceiver, a thief, if you have been cruel, if you have been filthy in your life, you're guilty. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Praise be his name. Father, thank you that in your great and marvelous mercy, impossible for us to comprehend, 
you have chosen to make atonement for us and forgive us from our sins. For that, God, we thank you. We also ask, O oh God, that you would help us to open our eyes and recognize the schemes of Satan, that we can avoid the traps. And, O oh God, convict us and receive us as repentant sinners when we willfully disobey you. Thank you for your grace. Through Jesus, amen. Thank you, Jim. Can we stand together?